Hello and welcome to the Anita Po Show and the Bitcoin for Fairness series, where we talk about the role Bitcoin plays in enabling economic empowerment for individuals and communities by providing fair and open access to a global financial network. This episode is a recording of the conversation I had on the Crypto Voices podcast with Matthew from Eastern Europe and Alec from Eastern US. It was recorded in July 2022. We're talking about my human rights journey, which has taken me around the world, from Africa to South America. I'm explaining how Bitcoin helps those in need and why they use it. Also, we talk about the differences in Bitcoin usage compared to how it's used in more liberal democracies. This is an audio-only episode and you can listen to it in your favorite podcast app. If you want to try something new, listen to it in a lightning-enabled podcast app like Breeze or the Fountain app. Thanks for supporting my work. Go out to the Human Rights Foundation, which is uniting the world to stand against tyranny. Paxful, the peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin exchange. Ledin.io, financial services for hodlers of digital assets. And OKCoin, the globally licensed cryptocurrency exchange. If you want to learn more about Bitcoin, go and buy my book. It's one of the best, if not the best book to understand not only the question of why the world needs Bitcoin, but also how you can use it to send, receive and safely store your Bitcoin. You can find it at learnbitcoin.link. And now on to the show. All right, everybody. Welcome, welcome here to show 131 on Crypto Voices. Matthew Majinskis, your host here from Eastern Europe, as always joined here by my co-host Alec Harris from Eastern US and Halo Privacy. Alec, how are you doing, man? All's pretty well, actually, Matthew. Good to talk to you. Indeed. Happy Friday. Likewise. Very pleased here to introduce our special guest today to the show, Anita Posh. Anita, I met for the first time in person um, last month, well, a month and a half ago in Norway in the uh, Oslo Freedom Forum. Uh, perhaps you've heard a lot of Bitcoiners were there. It's a very good experience. She does a lot of good work around the world with her Bitcoin for Fairness endeavor. Uh, she's a Bitcoin advocate, educator, uh, author as well. Thought it would be great to catch up on human rights and Bitcoin today. It's a very important topic uh, as the world is, just seems to be going completely mad. So, Anita, thank you very much for joining and uh, welcome, welcome to the show. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Alex. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation. It's an honor for me to be here, uh, Matthew, actually, because, you know, parts of your work are cited in my Learn Bitcoin book, where I talk about the different forms of uh, money, like M1 and M2 and those kinds of things. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it uh, very much. Very nice words. Thank you. So where to begin? Uh, it was nice to see you in Oslo. How have you been uh, feeling about Bitcoin uh, in the world of human rights these days? In general, that's my topic, you know. Um, um, that's the one I'm focusing most about in my work, like um, telling people or, or sharing my knowledge uh, about Bitcoin in the context of how it can help um, securing human rights because um, 
using money is basically uh, a freedom of transaction that you have or not have. And with the traditional financial system, you don't have it. And so for me, um, it was great to be the first time at the Oslo Freedom Forum. I was very honored to be invited as a moderator on a panel. And um, I, I, I was fascinated and very happy to see that the Bitcoin uh, part of the conference was quite big. So I think a lot of talks uh, were about Bitcoin and how it could help or can help um, human rights activists from all over the world um, in with their work, with their important work. And it was also great to meet some of those activists who are already using Bitcoin. And we also, of course, tried to um, engage newbies like there are a lot of human rights activists who still don't know about bitcoin or they think it's a scam uh, mm. or they have this knowledge of like 2016 uh, so bitcoin can only be used for cannot scaled cannot scale and and things like that you know um, yeah. and so i found it very important that the human rights uh, foundation alex Kleidstein, um that they did that um in that um big space basically Sergey uh, Kotler, we had uh, on uh, in between uh, now and the Freedom Forum as well. You know, he felt he had a bit of imposter syndrome being there as a Bitcoiner, and you know, in the presence of so many, uh, so many human rights uh, activists and people that have really been in the thick of it as far as it goes with uh, just dictatorial, you know, kleptocratic regimes and uh, torturous regimes and all the rest. It really, it really is an impressive thing to see when such uh, people come together. And yeah, I'm just so happy. Bitcoin is is becoming a part of that, and yeah, I've said it before, and as you said, it's kudos to Alex for kind of bringing that together as well. Yeah, we've talked a lot about Russia and Ukraine this year, and you know, I don't want to keep going on that topic, but I think that your angle is also very interesting because you're, uh, as I understand, a full time traveler now, and with your uh, mission with Bitcoin for Fairness, uh, are you focused primarily in Africa? Uh, not primarily Africa, primarily emerging countries. And I see those, yes, in Africa and in uh, South America. So, th so that's mostly the areas I'm focusing on now at the moment. So, um, yeah, Russia and Ukraine is actually not that topic for me in my work. Um, so, yes, at the moment it's Africa. And in the second half of the year, I will also go to South America. Great. How are things like in uh, in Zimbabwe these days? Oh, they are crazy. Really, really crazy. It's um, it's worse. I mean, it will get more worse. I I fear. Um, but in April they had like four hundred percent inflation. Um, they changed the the the, the, the local currency uh, in twenty nineteen to the Zimbabwe dollar, so the new Zimbabwean dollar. And back then they forced basically. Um, people who had US dollar accounts on their banks, they forced them uh, to exchange that one-to-one -to, -one to the new local currency, to the Zimbabwe dollar, and said, said to people, oh, uh, don't worry, it will stay one-to-one, -one, the exchange rate. I mean, everybody knew that this won't be true. And today, um, we have a rate of one to 800, you know, only three years later. And so it's really from from that point a horrible situation for the people. And um, Zimbabwe is a kleptocracy, a dictatorship. 
people are afraid to um, say their their opinion. Uh, whenever I do an interview, I ask people, what can we talk about? What should I not ask? And the answer is always, don't ask me about the government or politics. And um, so next year, there will be new um, a new government, uh, like there will be vote, vote, uh, voted. Um, and um, the, the situation is getting more tense and tense between the government and the opposition party. Um, that goes so far that the government uh, is banning the color yellow, for instance, yeah? because, because yellow T-shirts and yellow is the color of the opposition. Wow. People go missing. Um, some opposition me- members never came back. They, they be, have been murdered just recently in the last half year. Um, so it's really dangerous. And Bitcoin, of course, we always talk about in the space about Bitcoin in Venezuela and Zimbabwe and how great it would be as a hedge against inflation. And I always was wondering, hmm, is this really working? Are people doing this? And that was the reason why I went to Zimbabwe uh, the first time in 2020, before the pandemic, and to find out um, if people use it. And so then later on, like two years later, I thought, okay, let's put this uh, engagement, like my engagement for Bitcoin as a tool for human rights and as a tool for empowerment of people, a grassroots movement. Uh, let's let's try to to uh, make that a wider um, movement in a way. And so I had the idea to to do Bitcoin of Fairness, an initiative that opens itself up to volunteers and people who want to come in and help um, with education that can be like people who ask me now, hey, uh, I'm free, I'm a Bitcoin educator, what can I do? And at the same time, um, I'm going to some of these countries, doing workshops there, doing talks there, bringing infrastructure and most importantly, speak with people because they are very isolated there. Um, there are really Bitcoin maxis there, um, but they don't know any other people uh, who are like-minded. And so when I go there and organize a workshop or a meetup, then it's like uh, a, a, a catalyst, you know, bringing people together. And um, so I'm concentrating now on... Zimbabwe, Zambia, and I was in South Africa in March, in May. And uh, to, f- yeah, to foster grassroots adoption and also tell the story of the people there. And um, so, yes, the situation in Zimbabwe, we, have, we are having the third meetup in Zimbabwe uh, tomorrow, actually. And we never had any Bitcoin meetup, Bitcoin only meetups, I must say, in Zimbabwe before. And I'm very happy about that. So Bitcoin for Fairness is sponsoring these um, meetups and helping with the setup. And uh, I'm trying to guide them a little bit also with the the content of these meetups. And we, not we, but um, someone in Zimbabwe started mining Bitcoin now. And uh, so we have the first Bitcoin miners in Zimbabwe powered by solar. 
And that's really great, I think. And so, yeah, that's that's basically what I do with Bitcoin for Fairness, trying to share my knowledge on the ground and um, fostering grassroots adoption and f identifying people who can do that then in the long run. Because I'm only going there to to help, basically, to set it up, yeah? But um, the, the work needs to be done uh, by themselves, of course, because... Um, you know, I'm not the right person coming there telling them what to do. <laughs> this is really interesting. I was looking at your blog. I, I don't think you actually wrote the blog post, but it's hosted on Bitcoin for Fairness about this first, um, the first ever Bitcoin only meetup in Zimbabwe. And uh, I'd just be really interested in hearing, like, how is that conversation that you would have there different than, you know, a Bitcoin meetup in Berlin or Vienna or New York or something? Is the are the questions different? Uh, is the level of enthusiasm different? I mean, how would you compare them? So the general difference is that people there immediately understand the the sense that Bitcoin makes for them when you tell them it can't be taken away by your government, it can't be inflated by your government. You can send it everywhere, and you don't need a bank account. And so people understand that immediately. Um, which is not the same here in Europe. Here in Europe, people might ask you, so why would I use Bitcoin? I have a banking system that's working. Um, I have my stocks. I have, uh, I don't know what, yeah. Um, Bitcoin is too much of a risk for me or whatever. And I don't understand it. I don't need it. I don't want it. But there, it's actually the, the only possibility to transfer money in and out of the country too, because in Zimbabwe you have um, foreign currency. No, how is it called? Um, you can't, you're not allowed to send money out of the country. Capital controls. Thank you, capital controls. That's the word, exactly. So, and you have planned, uh, a planned, a fully planned economy, you can say. So the, um, the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe is determining, determining the price, uh, the exchange rate. So as in Argentina, you have an official bank rate, exchange rate, and you have one on the streets, which is actually like the black market that's illegal. But everybody on the street is using the, the black market rate, you know, because the bank rate, it's, it's much worse for the people than the street rate. And if you, for instance, are a business person in Zimbabwe and you want to import goods, you need US dollars for that because nobody is accepting the worthless Zimbabwe dollar. Um, so you need to go to every week there's an auction. So you need to go to the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe and say, um, I have this contract. I need 100,000 US dollars uh, because I want to pay it to this company. And from, from all these um, um, business people or businesses who come in and say, I want to, I need that amount of US dollars, they then, I don't know how this works, but then they set the price. And, <laughs> but the companies, they don't get the US dollars. The Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe or the government is paying the companies abroad in their name. <laughs> so you can't actually control your own business. And so, um, of course, it would be great for them to use Bitcoin for things like that because the government can't control that. The government doesn't even know how much they send, you know, or what for what. 
And so, um, yeah, the, the use case is relatively clear. It's just a problem um, that even more than here, people believe it's a scam because everybody almost knows someone who was scammed or a, a, a friend or was scammed mm. himself or herself. And I mean, we also have a lot of scams here in the so-called Western world. But on the one hand, we don't have that pressure, that need for money, because we have a, a relatively great wealth compared to the people in these countries. So um, the desire and the risk appetite is maybe not that high. But And on the other hand, the, the average level of education is much higher here, of course. So uh, you, you might be more critical in the first place. And um, since there is this much need for money, people believe every promise uh, other people make to them, you know. Um, it's the classic word or uh, sentence in, in African countries is, how can I join Bitcoin or join Bitcoin now? And I always say, you can't join Bitcoin, you use Bitcoin. Um, and when I tell them it's a technology, you don't need um, a to pay for an entry package or you don't need to bring someone into a group and only then you can... Yeah, but, Sign number one, it's a scam, by the way. Of course. Entry package. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but they don't know that and they really believe, they really believe that they can double their, their uh, investment in two months or something. And that's not only with Bitcoin. Uh, of course not. Um, it happens with their local currency too. So I, when I was in Zambia, I read in a newspaper uh, scam with uh, local currency. The local currency is called Quacha, Quacha scam. <laughs> and it was exactly the same. Uh, but with Bitcoin, you know, it's also more unknown. So they can tell them everything, basically. As a reminder to myself, I, for a couple of years now, I've had a $100 trillion note on my desk next to a one uh, Zimbabwe dollar note, uh, which were not printed that far from each other, right? The, in chronologically, uh, that as we all know, that inflation happened incredibly rapidly. But uh, at the same time, right? Like we all know, Bitcoin is highly volatile, and if uh, if the use case is more to like escape, the, as opposed to like a, I would argue a more traditional Western use case, which is a little bit more speculative, and you know, can I make money on this? Uh, if you're coming at it from uh, as a hedge or as an escape from a worse currency, uh, how how badly does that volatility, especially now in a downturn, does that uh, put a damper on the enthusiasm or, or are people tolerant of that in, in these emerging economies? I think they are more tolerant and I think the use case is more really sending and receiving and exchanging it then to local currency or to US dollar, especially in Zimbabwe, to buy goods and stuff. Um, so, so, like the remittance use case, for instance, if you exchange it immediately, you don't have that volatility, you know. Um, and so that's always what I tell them. Either you use it and exchange it and use it as a medium of a, like a rail, um, a, a, a payment rails. Or if you can hold it, if you at least can save a little bit, then you need to um, look at a longer time frame, at least four to five years and not spend it. And, and that's also the, the, the thing where, for me, uh, on-chain and lightning comes into, because I explain it like 
the funds on chain, Bitcoin, you can do bigger transactions and uh, it's like a savings account. And with Lightning, uh, you can have fast micropayments with almost no fee because you don't forget these people can maybe save $5 a month if you couldn't do that on chain with the transaction fees. I mean, you can, but sometimes it gets difficult. Um, but you can do it with, with Lightning. And um, that it's also more private. And so, of course, the volatility um, is bad for them. But on the other hand, uh, it's great for people who start now. Um, because in one or two years, I guess, uh, it will go up again. And so volatility is, is difficult for everyone, including me, <laughs> because I'm basically almost Bitcoin only. Um, but um, I think it also has a learning effect and they are much more used to difficulties. <laughs> so they are, I think they are more resilient than we are, you know, like yesterday, for instance. And that's always also a point where I see where the level of education is. There is a guy in Zimbabwe who is now organizing a meetup. And from what I've heard so far, like seeing him writing in our WhatsApp group or, or, or on Twitter and things like that, I thought he's a very well-educated Bitcoiner already. And yesterday when I sent him uh, the Bitcoin for the organization of the meetup, he then sent me a message and said, I wonder why it takes so long until I get it. <laughs> and then I knew, ah, okay, um, you don't know confirmation time, blocked blocks and, and things like that. And, um, but then he immediately said to me, but no problem. I go tomorrow to the guy who is exchanging it for me. No problem at all, you know? And, uh, I'm under the impression that people like us would rather say, Hey, what's going on with that? It's not working. I can't use that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so have you run into anyone like, for instance, uh, and I'm not sure in Zimbabwe, but, uh, there is reasonably high adoption in other parts of Africa for things like M-Pesa and other uh, mobile money transfer tools. And it's, you know, cellular based. Uh, so if, if someone already has that type of option, do they look at making a transfer using a lightning payment rail as an improvement, as a competitor, or do, would they say, hey, how is this different? Have you seen that comparison? I'd say I have not seen that comparison in, 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 real, in real life now, but I've talked about it and, and thought about it because, yes, like in Zimbabwe, EcoCash is the mobile money like M-Pesa. It's a centralized infrastructure uh, by a company and the government basically decides what they are allowed to do and what they are not. And people know that. Um, yes, like I think 90% of Zimbabweans use EcoCash, because it's the easiest way to use money without a bank, because banks are really broken there. And um, But sometimes also EcoCash does not really work. So uh, when their servers are down, suddenly you can't use EcoCash. Then you need to have either Zimbabwe dollar in your pocket, or if you're lucky, you are wealthy or something, and you have US dollars. Then you pay with that. Um, and so I think there's a point to make that the transition from mobile money to Bitcoin or Lightning could be fast because they are used to use their mobile phones to pay stuff directly, like on every street corner. Um, 
But of course, you need to educate first, or they need to 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 get the idea, and that lightning is Bitcoin, and um, that's the point where I say, you know, the difference between EcoCash and Bitcoin and Lightning is the same point as before. Nobody can take it away. The government can't influence it. They cannot shut an account. Uh, there's no company behind it. And if you hold the keys, it's yours. And um, I think still it needs a lot of work and educational efforts um, to, to get this point um, there that it's about self-custody and about this um, unstoppable money. That's, in my point, point, the most important differentiator to any other altcoin uh, and also to stable coins. I'm going there again in September and um, I, I'm looking very much forward to do another um, workshop there and see, uh, meet the people who organize the new meetups to basically um, make these the, the groundwork, you know, more stable and that they also get to a point where they really can self-organize and don't need any money also anymore uh, from from me, from us, from Bitcoin for Furnace. So, mm. yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that's one thing I wanted to add, um, what we missed. In the last days, uh, they announced, the government and the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe announced the introduction of gold coins. And um, so they're going back to use gold as a store of value and they're selling it basically, um, yeah, to, to secure, like you can save your money with that. Yeah. And I immediately and many other commenters from Zimbabwe uh, said things like, yeah, I mean, you can forge gold. Um, you can uh, like make the, how is it called? You can put other materials in it, less worthy yeah, materials. Yeah. Dilute, yeah, exactly. And then I said, yeah, um, and I'm sure the mint uh, is owned by people from the government or something like that. So they really try um, everything to to steal from the people. Not to mention the storage fees. Yeah, so it's really a sad story. And I really hope that next year the opposition yeah, will win. And I hope it's getting better anytime soon. It's great work, absolutely. I mean, everything we can do to uh, push the message, I think, is is a positive. I wanted to move then to to El Salvador. Uh, always makes waves in the Bitcoin space. Uh, you were there in November of 2021. Uh, LaBitConf was there as well. We've talked to a few people on the show that were there. Uh, I've been to LaBitConf, a great conference. You know, one of the one of the oldies, one of the goodies. Uh, I was not there. For this particular one, but um, yeah, you've written about it. You have uh, spoken about your time there. I guess yeah, just high level. How do you feel about the uh, you know the Bitcoin Beach and everything that Bukele is doing for uh, bringing Bitcoin to El Salvador? First, I want to say I think what Bitcoin Beach has done or has been doing is fantastic. Um, they are basically a blueprint for Bitcoin Ekasi in South Africa. And uh, so they are like um, uh, people see what they have been doing and start their own circular economy in uh, in a township, for instance. And I think think that's fantastic. And um, so it's basically what grassroots adoption should and could look like, I believe. And um, like as I said in my article, um, President Bukele with the legal tender law that Bitcoin is legal tender. I mean, 
If we see it on the nation state level, I think it's a, it's a great idea in a way to uh, adopt Bitcoin as a nation state because he's really making waves now uh, on the, in the international, in the monetary fund and all these international organizations and stepping a little bit on the toes of, of the US. And, and so, so I think in the long run, um, the general idea of mining Bitcoin with their own natural resources and uh, using it as a long-term uh, store of value um, is a, a great thing. And it's also uh, great for the Bitcoin movement in a way that um, he's, the, or, or let's say, El Salvador is, is the first country uh, to do this. And uh, so other countries need to start thinking about it, either if they are opposed to, or they might also follow that example. The only thing I'm very critical of and I really dislike is the way how it went. Um, I think a top-down approach in producing a closed-source wallet where the keys of the Bitcoin belong to the government or to the state of El Salvador, I don't know exactly who has it. I mean, I think they are in the custody of an American company, which I think is absurd, but yeah, um, that's not a good thing in my point of view, even more um, because the government has so far, as I know, as far as I know, never invested in any kind of education for the people other than giving them 20 US dollars uh, so that everybody is downloading the wallet and most of the people went and exchanged that to US dollars or used it for, for petrol. Um, I think that's not the way that long-term sustainable adoption can look like because with all the problems that they also had with the Chivo wallet, people were like uh, saying, oh, there's no thing, new thing, it doesn't work. And, and the general public cannot um, distinguish between what is the problem of Chivo and what is the problem of Bitcoin. I mean, only mm -hmm. like we maybe can do that, yeah? And, and so... I'm not sure how much good has been done for the people, really. I mean, if people use it in a, with an open-sourced wallet, like, for instance, as remittance uh, from the U.S., from their families to um, El Salvador, it's great. If they can go to the ATMs to exchange it uh, to U.S. dollars, that's great. So um, it's really, it has something of both sides, but still I favor uh, bottom-up educational work, um, trying to, to get circular economies going and uh, less of the big talking and I'm the, the, the new strongman and um, I'm doing it my way and everybody else can, you know, go somewhere. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, if you look at all the, the human rights organizations and the problems the country has and how he's solving it, yes, we can say it's none of our business. Yes, we can say we have a European view. We don't know what's going on in South America. That's true. That's true, really. But human rights are global, you know. A human, human right is not different in El Salvador or in Zimbabwe or in Austria or in the US. It's a human right. And therefore, I believe... Um, what, what I'm really angry about is all those fanboys and fangirls um, saying Bukele is the greatest Bitcoiner. Yeah, All the time I see articles writing how much Bukele did for Bitcoin. Yes, maybe in a way on this national level, okay? 
but we had we could have gone without that too <laughs> yeah yeah. I think Bitcoin will be adopted without nation-state adoption. That's, yeah. That was the idea of Bitcoin. And all those libertarians suddenly saying, oh, how great, Bukele, what he's doing for Bitcoin. I don't understand that. So that's, yeah. that's my thing, yeah. Yeah, a lot of things to touch on there. I think one of the most interesting things about sort of the times that we're in right now, and, I, and I've said this a lot, this is uh, old news, I guess, to our listeners, but I find that it's, always fascinating that those that uh, espouse the most classical liberal views or libertarian views or views about freedom and liberty, uh, for some reason, they have a keen interest in seeing strongmen or dictators supposedly bring those types of views about. And if they're doing it with something like Bitcoin, all the better. You know, you see that with Bukele, you see that with, uh, with Putin, even central bank and Putin are liberalizing Bitcoin laws and in Russia, lowering Bitcoin taxes in Russia. Meanwhile, you know, they're murdering, raping, and pillaging Ukrainians. Uh, you see this a lot. It's a curious phenomenon, I think, where you, I guess I'll just leave it there. What do you think about the fact that uh, that seems to be the case for a lot of Bitcoiners, fanboys and fangirls, as you, as you say? Yeah, I, I, I hope, to be honest, I hope it's only the loud uh, voices that go through more than the others. And um, I, I actually don't know why most of the Bitcoiners seem to be more on these libertarian, conservative, conservative um, 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 side. Yeah, uh, because actually Bitcoin um, is is the ideal, um, the incorporation or something like that, like for for human rights and uh, for solidarity in a way. It's um, community money, I think. So um, I don't know where that comes from, but um, the the problem with that, of course, with these loud voices, is also that it seems that Bitcoiners are all the same way. You know, like they are all like that. We are all like that, which is not true. And um, yeah. So in general, I think uh, independent now of Bitcoin in the world, we see a tendency to, to strongmen uh, and uh, to this kind of politics that focus on my nation only, my nation first, um, and not so much anymore uh, about the the humankind in general and how, um, I mean, you see, this is basically what you see in the, the small level and also in the, on the bigger level, like, yeah, from people, person to person, we have this divide now, um, uh, pro-mask, pro-vaccination, anti-mask, anti-vaccination, and this is a split in families and friends and wherever, and we also have that even more and more in, in this nation state, on this nation state level. And I mean, even now, 40, uh, no, 54% of the global population live already in authoritarian countries or under dictators. So um, now it's getting more instead of less. Yeah, that, that's really worrying. And yeah. Yeah, it's a bit disheartening. This isn't like a full indictment on this sort of view because like you said, I think that there's a wide range of Bitcoiners and clearly there's a wide range of use cases and this stuff has been talked about, you know, ad nauseum. But I wonder, you know, in a place like El Salvador, it's kind of interesting because you have, uh, you know, pushing justices out, you know, this law about 15 years in prison if you uh, write 
anything bad. If you're a journalist and you write anything about gangs, it's eerily similar to Russia's law that if you call it a war against Ukraine, now you'll spend 15 years in prison uh, as well. It's just very strange that these types of institutions and uh, states are where Bitcoin is sort of uh, fomenting. And in some ways, maybe it's sort of expected, right? Because these are the types of states as well that have been demonized for years and pushed out of the Western, swift, you know, fiat US dollar system uh, for other reasons. From that point of view, I also think um, this had to happen in that way. Uh, the first, um, like say, states, nation states uh, um, who will adopt Bitcoin in a way are those uh, so-called, but there's also a name for it, this, um, uh, help me out here. Yeah, George Bush would call them the axis of evil, but uh, yeah, I don't, I actually, I, it's, uh, it's slipping my mind as well, you know, sanctioned nations, I don't know, Alec, what's the word for these types of countries? Blacklisted countries. Gangster countries or something <laughs> like that, yeah. they yeah. call it. It's like with the internet. Who used the internet first? It was used for porn and still is. <laughs> I mean, most of it still is used for <laughs> porn. Um, and by casinos and, uh, yeah, gangsters, they say. And uh, I think it's the same uh, with Bitcoin on an individual level. And, I mean, this whole, this whole uh, buying drugs with Bitcoin, I mean, I don't, it's still a thing, I guess. But maybe they also use Monero or something else. I don't know. Um, but so um, it goes like from from these being only for gangsters and fraudsters and to money for money launderers, um, it will reach an acceptance in the society as money, um, and that's what I'm looking forward to. Uh, but if if we don't ruin it first, um, so if we don't ruin it with all the KYC regulations and um, um, how the, the, the travel rule and all these crazy stuff where data, private data will be leaked um, and where people will put in danger for earning Bitcoin and things like that. So I, I'm on the one hand, I'm very optimistic about Bitcoin and what it um, enables people to do and for their freedom. But on the other hand, I'm very pessimistic, even more in the European Union at the moment, about their way to become a, a, a worse than China. Um, and, and this is really, yeah, uh, disappointing and, um, yeah, one of the reasons why I'm looking for other options than Europe. I mean, I love Europe in, in general, yeah. I'm a European, but if they really make those regulations so tight, I'm not going to stay here. I, this, this is not where I want to live. It's interesting you bring up the, the uh, Bitcoin for drugs argument because... Matthew and I have talked about this over the years. I actually think that one has started to fade away. Um, I think over time, first of all, like you have, say what you will about, you know, um, the financialization of the space and larger institutions adopting it and, and it being more mainstream in the media coverage. But over time, that has also dispelled with some of the, you know, this is just the currency of the dark web narrative which I think is ultimately good, but uh, we have other narratives now that we have to battle. But what you were saying, I think, was really interesting around, you know, if we, if we don't ruin it or kill it first. Um, and I, I also kind of think of it like the war on drugs. Uh, and so the more regulation and the more money and the more enforcement, 
uh, and the more you know, so-called education that was pumped into that uh, really never seemed to counter any of the dark markets that uh, existed for drugs. And, and it has actually led to, it, I'll speak for the U.S., but there are countries in Europe and, um, and elsewhere in the world that have trended towards legalization and you know, kind of acquiescing to these things that are going to be there. Uh, and that it's easier to live beside some of these things than it is to try to completely smash them. And so it may make the arc of of Bitcoin's story longer because it has to fight through more regulation and regulators will have to learn how almost silly it is to try to enforce some of these regulations. And some will be successful and some will less so. But I, I'm, I guess my question for you, right, is does does the battle that occurs between you know, just kind of the dispassionate continuation of the protocol and the attempts to regulate it and to fit it into boxes and to govern how people interact with it, does that ultimately prove the use case? Or do you think that that is such a deterrence for people that, you know, it could, that could it be defeated? Could Bitcoin lose out to regulation globally? I believe that it can squash the, the general public's interest, you know, the people who obey to law. <laughs> I mean, it's not saying that I'm not um, following the law, you know, I'm not a criminal. Um, but uh, I think uh, for many people, it's also okay that um, there is no digital privacy anymore. And I think for these kinds of people, yes, um, it might become not interesting. They don't have a use case for them for it. But for the people who really need it, like because of the censorship resistance and, and its other properties that make it um, uh, unstoppable, they will still use it. At least I hope so. And what I also my hope is that, um, like in from the technology from the technical side, um, we will see pay joins and more easier wallets to to do coin joins um, and things like that. And um, so that we can build. I mean. Alec, you, 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 privacy is your topic. Yeah. You have, I'm sure you have more to say about that too as me, but, um, I think privacy is also one of the most important points for Bitcoin. When, uh, the, the general, the uh, uh, individual, let's say it like that, that is not into Bitcoin like we are or into privacy like we are, uh, realizes, Hey, I mean, my government knows everything about me. They now text me directly. Um, they know, uh, who I spend money for like a political campaign. Yeah. Maybe they realize, uh, that shouldn't be the way. And maybe that's the point where Bitcoin needs to be as private as possible, um, for them to use it. And, and so, yeah, there are different angles. Yeah. I don't think that they can kill it because there are now too many people who know of the advantages, uh, and they won't stop using it. I think if you, if you one time, uh, if you, you, you had some success with it for you personally in your use case, um, you won't stop using it. Why should you? I kind of think it would be very hard to kill the user base. But I think uh, if you had a globally concerted effort to try to shut down mining at the scale that it exists now, because uh, I don't think you can shut down mining, right? You could always mine, but at the scale that is giving the level of, of on-chain security that we have now, that would, that would be a challenge that would take time to overcome. Yeah, but do you really think that there is some kind of global agreement on that? Not now, no. 
look, if Russia now is adopting it and they want to enable their um, um, oligarchs to use it and Putin himself wants to use it, um, they will never agree on that. Maybe someday, I don't know, but that's, I think, too much, too far in the future. I, I'm not sure if I'm here then, <laughs> if I'm still here. Yeah, so let me ask, you brought up, uh, uh, you know, what, what our governments know about us. And I don't know if you guys have seen in the news this massive, personal data leak in China. Uh, are, are you tracking that story? No. Can you summarize? Uh, I just did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've seen it, yes. Uh. Yeah, no, so it was like something close to a billion uh, records of, of personal data of Chinese citizens from uh, a Shanghai, I want to say it was like a Shanghai police, to, police like a um, law enforcement database and so why, is, why one city had a law enforcement database that covered, you know, obviously most of the country, I don't, I don't quite know how that works. Um, and we don't really hear about data leaks out of China very often. I'm sure they happen more often than it's reported in the West, at least. But this one made news all over. Um, and so what I thought was interesting about it is we already assume and know that the Chinese government has tons of information on their population. So a data leak isn't really the same as I would think of a data leak in the West where uh, we at least purport to have governments that are protecting the privacy of their citizens, which we can have a long debate about that. Um, in this case, it was a, a government that is collecting information on their people and is known to do that, I would argue, maliciously, and then is a poor custodian of that data. And so I, I'd just be interested in what you think, Anita, about the dynamics of a Chinese data leak versus the way we think about it in the West. What comes to my mind is an Austrian politician who is still uh, in, in, in duty, basically, in the Austrian parliament once said at the police congress, he said, I congratulate uh, the Chinese government on their data policy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where we are going, yeah? It's also the same with this guy from the Bank of International Settlement who said we want to know everything down to 100 USD, which will be yeah. in 10 years, it's like 50 USD worth, you know? Uh, like the, the 10K that were 10K in 1972, yeah? <laughs> when they did yep. that. So I think... Um, the, the problem, I think, is that people also get used to that, you know. They say, oh, I don't care. I know, uh, pff, yeah, let them have all my data. I'm not doing anything which is bad. I'm good, yeah. As long as they don't get into the situation until they are the target. And that's something I've learned uh, from my grandparents, basically, who were young people when the Nazis came to Austria and suddenly Austria was a Nazi country, and um, suddenly everything was in a way against them, you know, um, and, and, and because they were, of course, in the resistance against the Nazis. But the next day, it can be you. Huh? Uh, you, are the, you are the target. Um, and so I think everyone uh, should be aware of the fact that you can become a target. And even if it's just you buy uh, a hardware wallet uh, at a big um, uh, manufacturer and the marketing database gets leaked yeah and then suddenly you're a target for thieves and robbers yeah well done thank you um <laughs> so it's everywhere you know we must we we have to um have more of these kind of cypherpunk thinking produce less data 
Yeah, so uh, from my so point of view, um, I'm not a developer, but I beg you all, please uh, develop uh, software and Bitcoin in that way that um, we give away least data, only the one that is really uh, needed and that in a cryptographic secure way. Because I think that's the only defense we have. And, and most people completely underestimate that. Uh, some in our uh, space also say it's a weapon, which I find silly because I don't need a weapon. I want peace and I want to defend myself. I don't want to aggressively uh, conquer something or someone with a weapon. So, um, yeah, these are my thoughts. I'm coming from this point to <laughs> yeah. another. Yeah, we spoke with the RGB folks um, last week and similar story, you know, where we can uh, create a world where you don't have to log in with some centralized third-party uh, Oracle type uh, of a handshake. You can do everything cryptographically based on your own node or own wallet, choose what information you can share. This is definitely, uh, I think, a vision that we're, we're uh, proponents of. Seems like it's, it's still going to be hard, though, hard to get there because we have uh, so many competing views even within Bitcoin. Alluding back to what we've talked about earlier in this discussion, I think there still is a, a disparity there between people that might need or want to use Bitcoin in emerging markets for real human rights endeavors and needs, and then people that are, I guess, in the Western world, uh, maybe feeling okay or feeling that the best use case for Bitcoin so far is. Uh, just to hodl. I almost sound a little bit disparaging towards that view. I'm not because I totally uh, am probably more of one of those persons myself. But um, yeah, there are many goals here and sometimes it's hard to square that circle. I don't speak against hodling, you know. I also try to hold as much as possible as I can, of yeah. course, because I'm yeah. also speculating that it goes up in five years or in 10 years. Um, but I think that a lot of people in the space are still investors. So they buy Bitcoin on an exchange and let it be there. And as soon as their stocks go down, they cash out their Bitcoin. And, as, and, and that's why we have these correlations, because most people think it's like a stock, you know. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and I think until we get to a level where we have more people in the space holding their own keys and no Knowing that you can't rehypothecate Bitcoin like that, you can't build these pyramid schemes like uh, lending, like Celsius and all these companies did, uh, which is basically re rebuilding the traditional financial system in the same stupidity and same idiotic way, you know. Yeah. Um, so this had to come down, and I think that's a good thing in a way. Um, and. I only hope and I, I think and I'm optimistic that we we have to get out m more the word of, of self-custody uh, and privacy and, and these kinds of things. Uh, it's, it's sad that, um, but that's the way people are. Uh, most people, <laughs> I think, see Bitcoin also a little bit as a... Uh, as a hobby, you know, like talking about it endlessly, discussing, uh, are you a maximalist or are you not a maximalist? Yeah. And I say, hey, people, please just go back to work. Yeah. Educate your peers about Bitcoin, show them how it works, uh, donate to good courses, help uh, developers by testing or something else. 
But it's in the nature of people, I think. I mean, we are also on a podcast now and speaking about yeah. things and discussing it. Um, so that's not a bad thing in, in itself, of course. Um, but the needs of the people down there are much, much bigger in a way. That doesn't, I don't mean to, 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 um, to lower the needs of the people in Western countries, of course not. Um, but yeah, if, if more people were to see Bitcoin really at, at, as what it is, an alternative money that can't be stops, that stopped, that doesn't need banks, that can't, can't be forged and rehypothecated, um, then, then also I think we would decorrelate from, from stock prices and all these kinds of things. That was awesome. Uh, totally agree. So uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, so earlier on, you mentioned that you try to live as much as possible on Bitcoin. Uh, can you speak to what your experience is like on that? Where is it frustrating at times? Where have you been successful? Uh, yeah, of course, it's frustrating at the moment. So if you receive a lot of your sponsorship and donations um, when it's like 50,000 and then you are such a convinced Bitcoiner that you also want to hold it in Bitcoin because you are still disillusioned and you think you're still, you're still so naive to think it goes up, 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 <laughs> um, uh, or so well optimistic. Um, and, and then suddenly it's only, the value is only half or less than that. Yes, that's hard. Um, but for me, I'm, it's the second bear market now for me. And I learned, um, that, that it will go up again. That's at least what I believe. And I also learned, okay, then uh, you just need to to try to get more money in again, you know. Um, I think the world is full of abundance and uh, I believe that, that there is enough for everyone. And um, so, of course, it hurts. And, um, I mean, it makes things more difficult, but on the other hand, it makes you... Uh, like, like say, tougher in a way, and also um, more innovative and and thinking about how, what are other opportunities? How can I get some money in because I don't want to spend all of my Bitcoin, you know? And and so and I'm also trying to reduce costs. Then, yeah, I mean. You don't need meetups where people get food, um, drinks, and transport money, which is a thing in, in Southern African countries. People don't go to free educational events if they don't get transport money or food. <laughs> but on the other hand, I mean, they need food, you know, they, they don't have so much money. But yeah, so you try to optimize uh, here and there. And in general, I find it fascinating to be able to do what I do because Bitcoin gave me the freedom to, to do what I want, basically. Not that I'm extremely rich. I came in in 2017. Uh, I'm not one of the school of 2011 or so OGs. Um, so it's it's still hard, but I'm an entrepreneur. Or I identify as an entrepreneur. And so... It's an obstacle, but um, it will. I, I, I will manage, and um, I hope others too. Yeah, I mean, I feel sorry, of course, for everyone who who has been hurt by putting their money somewhere where they lost it and things like that, and also uh, very much for the people like in in the circular economy in in the township in South Africa, for instance. Um, it's hard for them. It's much harder for them, you know, uh, than than for me. As you're looking at uh, places like Zimbabwe, where you're uh, working uh, qu quite closely, or if you're seeing what's happening in South America, 
do you see any meaningful differences as far as how people are using Bitcoin there versus, say, in our liberal democracies where people are buying and holding Bitcoin until the next uh, run up in price? I mean, they also try to invest in Bitcoin. Yeah. So I, I also try to um, get over the message that it's not about investment. Investment is something for stockbrokers or, I don't know, wealthy people. It's about saving, yeah. Um, a lot of people in these countries, as I said, they have a lack of education. They also have more of a lack than we do in financial education. So also because they never had money to, to save, you know. And um, so it's it's basically also a kind of a basic financial education as I was always to also talking about the scams before. So um, my work there is really very basic. Um, um, nobody is discussing with me uh, words or ideologies. And uh, it's also something I say, the people there don't need our Bitcoin ide ideology. Yeah, They just need something that works, uh, money that works and that... Um, the value of it um, that they that it stays the same or appreciates over time, and um, so I think the biggest differentiator is yes, seeing it as a store of value, um, just a tool for speculation, and it's like a stock um, compared to I really need to use it. My bank is not working. I can't get the get the money out of my bank anymore. Um, my in Zimbabwe, nobody is using credit cards, for instance, because it's much too expensive to exchange it back. Uh, to to or it doesn't work to exchange it back to Zimbabwe dollars or or something uh, to get it out again. And so people are used to use cash. And I always say Bitcoin is digital cash. It has basically the same properties, and uh, nobody can take it away from you. So. Um, that's my approach more in those countries. I just wanted to chime in with a quick thank you for, I think your message is super important and uh, very accepting and welcoming. And I think we need as much of that as we can possibly have in the community. So cheers to that. Absolutely. I second that. And I think that's probably, um, you know, a good spot to wrap it today. You know, I think it's just, uh, the world is getting pretty mad, as I said at the beginning, uh, on, on a top level and a geopolitical level in many, many cases. You know, you're thinking about leaving uh, your home continent and uh, I think many other Europeans uh, are as well, let alone people in Ukraine who are forced to leave their, their homeland. But um, yeah, and it's not necessarily looking... Uh, any better in the bastion of liberal democracy in the United States. There's, um, yeah, institutions are being challenged. Everything is being challenged uh, these days, I think, to the fullest. And uh, sometimes we can just bring it back to basics. And it's very, very interesting to hear this message, uh, particularly regarding emerging markets and people that, you know, really, really need Bitcoin sometimes for, of course, for investment purposes, but also uh, for survival uh, when their own particular unit of account is going, uh, you know, going in the trash very, very quickly. So, yeah, really, really all important messages and uh, really pleasure uh, to chat with you about this today, Anita. So, you know, maybe as we close it, any final thoughts there, anything maybe we didn't cover? And 
as well, good for our listeners, if you could provide any links or any further information on where they can uh, find out more about what you're doing. Yeah, thank you very much, both of you, for the kind words. Uh, it's always great to hear that. And um, I would ask, as I as I said before, I mean, Bitcoin went down and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Bitcoin for Fairness, of course, needs always donations and funds for the work we're doing. And so I would ask you to um, go to uh, Bitcoin for Fairness website, that's bffbtc.org. And we have a donation page there uh, where you can send Bitcoin and Lightning directly to us. Or um, if you want to spend your so-called dirty fiat, uh, then you can go to my website, anitaposch.com. There's also a link to Patreon uh, where you can support my work. Other than that, I have a podcast, the Anita Posch Show, and a newsletter, and that's at anita.link slash news. And for all of you who really donate to Bitcoin for Fairness, I'm starting uh, community calls in the next week weeks where you can basically talk with the people on the ground in Zimbabwe, in Zambia, South Africa about their experiences um, with Bitcoin and maybe also get to know the people and um, yeah, it would be great uh, if you join. Wonderful. Anita, thank you very, very much for joining. Really pleasure talking again. Really interesting to hear everything that you're doing. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. Bye. See you guys. That's it. Thanks for joining. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe to my show at anita.link slash subscribe and recommend it to your friends. If you want to do a little bit more, you can donate at anita.link slash donate. Special thanks for supporting Bitcoin for Fairness go out to the Human Rights Foundation, Paxful, Leden and OKCoin. Music Late Truth by Audio Hertz. See you soon at the Anita Posh Show.